I want to say hi everyone again to another episode of the X Classes 100 Cups of Coffee series. You're here with Dana and my guest today is the wonderful Neil Craig. I would say he's my law professor but that just doesn't sound like enough and I'll tell you why in a minute. He is the director of the School of Environment, Enterprise and Development which is the program that I'm in and really enjoying so thanks for your hard work there. You're welcome. Um, he also knows a lot about environmental law. He used to be a lawyer and he's got a wealth of knowledge, I think, in regards to that. And I think he's a good leader. So I'm going to start off by saying thank you so much, Neil, for coming in and sitting down with us and talking. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. And first question, can you introduce yourself to us, what your interests are, maybe what you're pursuing right now? Sure. Uh, so I'm Neil Craig. I'm the director of the School of Environment, Enterprise, and Development. I'm also cross-appointed to the Balsili School of International Affairs, and I'm also a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance Innovation. You're busy. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes I'm very busy. I'm, um, as you said, my background is in environmental law. I do a lot of work in international environmental law, so that's my research area principally. And in, within that field, I'm mostly doing work on things related to climate governance. Uh, I'm particularly interested in the governance of something called climate engineering, which is um, large-scale interventions in the Earth's climate uh, to counteract climate change, which is something I'd be happy to talk to you about. And um, beyond, beyond that, I'm... Uh, former lawyer. Um, I've got two kids, and I live in Waterloo, and uh, and I like doing lots of things. I spend too much time watching sports. and uh, but What some, sports? Uh, I, can, I hear I can, you like the Jays. I can pretty well watch any sport okay. going. Um, but yeah, I like, uh, I like watching baseball. I like watching soccer. Okay. Um, <laughs> but bad habit, I can watch anything. Okay. Um, my question to you is you talked about climate change engineering and these large-scale interventions. How do you come into that? What do you, what's your role, I guess? What are you trying to do? Well, yeah, let me answer that in two different ways. So how I became interested in it is because I've done a lot of work on the international law of environmental impact assessment. So that is what are the international legal rules requiring states to look at the environmental consequences of their activities. And I was interested in activities that occur in parts of the world where states don't have jurisdiction, so the high seas and in the uh, high atmosphere, so the stratosphere. And so one of the activities that's becoming um, more talked about is this thing called climate engineering. And so some technologies may involve putting substances into the high seas to make uh, phytoplankton grow. The phytoplankton would then photosynthesize, taking up carbon, and then some of it would sink to the bottom of the ocean and it would sequester carbon that way. So it's a way of actually removing carbon from the atmosphere as a way to uh, counteract uh, climate change and greenhouse gas emissions. So it's sort of like us taking action against the action that we've already taken in, say, like, as opposed to just not polluting more. It's about undoing what we did, or...? It's a little bit about undoing what we did. It's certainly not about 
not reducing emissions. Uh, we have to reduce emissions. Yes. The problem is that we have so many emissions in the atmosphere that we may actually have to remove some of those emissions because uh, carbon dioxide stays in the atmosphere okay. for such a long period of time. And even if we start reducing our emissions, what's important is not the annual emissions, but the total amount of emissions that are in okay. the atmosphere because that's what causes uh, climate change. And so some of these technologies, like the one I just talked about, are about removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. There are other technologies called solar radiation management, which are about cooling the earth, usually by increasing the albedo effect on a very large scale. And so this could be done by increasing cloud cover in some way, because clouds are white and they reflect sunlight away from the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, another way to do it is to put aerosols in the stratosphere. Um, aerosol sounds like this demonized word by this point. Yeah, I mean, aerosols, aerosols just a, is a kind of particle that has right. some certain physical properties. Uh, one of those physical properties is it, it scatters light. And so if you think about when a volcano erupts, mm -hmm. and so part of what happens when a volcano erupts is it puts sulfate aerosols very high in the atmosphere. One of the things that happens is those particles reflect light away from the, from the earth, and that cools the earth. So when Mount Pinatubo erupted, there was a measurable cooling of the earth after that eruption for some time. And so one of the... I would say hypothesized technologies, and these are very early stage, really just a set of hypothesized technologies. But they, you know, but scientists understand them. Um, is to place sulfates or some other kind of aerosol in the stratosphere to to cool the Earth, and we would do that because if climate change becomes so severe um, that it may be necessary to alleviate um, some of the worst impacts of climate change, some of the worst feedbacks, uh, and it may be necessary to potentially alleviate um, significant human suffering. And so I became interested in this because, as you can imagine, those create incredible governance challenges. Yeah. Uh, you know, so just thinking about how you would govern a technology where the technology uh, cools the global average temperature. So who gets to decide how much? Who and, does get to decide? Well, uh, you, you know, nobody knows. Most of the work I do now is just on, is looking at research governance because this is a tech, this is not something that is going to happen in five years or 10 years or probably even 20 years. But the question is, should we be doing research on this or is this such an inherently dangerous idea that we shouldn't even be researching it? Uh, if we are going to research it, how do we ensure that the research is done in a responsible way and in a way that the research unfolds so that the policy discussion that we'll have about this is informed and legitimate and people actually believe the research. And so I'm quite interested in ensuring that our future debates around climate are informed by science and that science isn't ignored and that in and the science is done properly. Okay, so almost ethics even just of research and... Yeah, so some of the people I work with, mm -hmm. so I'm not an ethicist, but I work with 
people in philosophy departments who are ethicists, and there are ethicists out there who specialize in climate ethics and in particular on the ethics of climate engineering. Next question. This is, I guess, going a different direction, but I know you as the director of SEED, and I know you in this environmental law sphere. Um, and before you used to practice law, and this was something that was, it still is, but I'm wondering what the misconceptions are that people have, both clients and sort of aspiring lawyers, about what law is and what practicing law is. Does Suits and the Good Wife get it right, or the look on his face right now, guys? Yeah. <laughs> um, what do you think? Sure. From I, your I mean, um, well, yes and no. I mean, okay. obviously, no. Suits and the Good Wife don't get it right because <laughs> that's not it's practicing law isn't you know particularly sexy and fun and, and cases aren't and resolved yeah. in an hour. Um, and so, but there's elements, um, you know, in lots of, um, televised bits of law that I, you know, you can certainly, I certainly recognize from, from, um, when I practiced, uh, you know, I think it is a very, it is a very fast paced, um, profession and it is a profession that requires people to, um, think on their feet and be very strategic and to um, um, to be very responsive to difficult clients, which you often see on television. <laughs> so I, I don't know what, what, what misconception, I, I mean, I think the misconception people might have about law is I think people might see it as too narrow a profession because I think most of our sort of popular culture representations of law tend to be in big firm environments and a kind of corporate, um, you know, big glass tower and it all looks very slick. Yeah. But of course, the majority of lawyers, um, that's not what they do. I mean, the, the vast number of, of, of lawyers are sole practitioners or work in very small practices. There's huge numbers of lawyers that work for the government uh, and uh, inside uh, companies. And I think there may be some people who might think, and I think the way lawyers are portrayed are very brash, and, uh, uh, but I would say almost all the best lawyers that I know are, are not at all like that. They tend to be very thoughtful, quiet, methodical people. And, um, and so I don't think that there's a kind of personality that does well in law. I think it's a broad enough profession that uh, anyone who is smart and thoughtful and hardworking can succeed at. I think that there is a huge variety of things you can do with a law degree that people with a wide variety of interests, whether it's in social justice, whether it's in the environment, whether it's in a corporate commercial. And so uh, I think when I talk to students about, about a career in law, I think most of them come to me with this idea of working in a big base street law firm. And is that for them? And you know, my sense is, I mean, I don't think you know until you go and work at one. And I wouldn't get my and but keep your eyes open because there's so many other things that you can you can do with a law degree, including not practicing law, mm -hmm. but using the the knowledge that you gain from from doing a law degree, which is, I think is a very useful 
um, right. set of skills and, 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 and knowledge to have in, yeah. in all sorts of things. You sort of see the world a different way. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's a very it's a very disciplined way of thinking. It's very mm-hmm. systematic, which is part of you know what we yeah. talk a little bit about <laughs> in class. I guess is I'm trying to get students to understand that arguments are about structure and careful, carefully marshalling both facts and rules in a particular way. And that requires some some skill, and those skills certainly transcend legal argumentation. And so there's lots of things that you learn in law school. Uh, what that do you learn useful. in law school? I think broadly what you're being taught to do is think in a particular way, okay. uh, learning how to structure arguments, learning how, how the law actually works, the common law works in a particular way in terms of how it uh, how it changes over time and the kinds of things it re- responds to. Uh, I think understanding the the nuances of law is particularly important. Understanding legal process is particularly important as well. So not just sort of where to show up and what documents to file, but understanding why those rules look the way they do. So why do we give people notice? Why do we allow people to have representation in certain kinds of disputes, but maybe not in other kinds of disputes? Mm. And so I think it's a really, um, and I suppose you learn a little bit just about how government works. And, uh, you know, broadly law is about social ordering, right? And so how do we get along as a society? And law isn't all of that, but it's part of that. And I think the other thing that you learn in law school, or um, hopefully in, and not only in law school, um, is, is how, how law and how rules structure society and what those limits are. And I think, again, that's another misconception that people have. Uh, about law is that it can solve lots of problems but again as I was talking about earlier there are some problems that are political problems there's some problems that are legal problems there's some problems that are economic problems there's some things that are purely ethical um, and may not lend themselves uh, and we wouldn't want them to be resolved um, legally and so and so understanding yeah. the place that law has uh, in, in all of that is important as well. I'm really interested in the fact that you brought up um, the way that law teaches you to think and that you sort of get this this idea of social ordering because when I was little and I was growing up, you know, I was t- I, I looked at math and science in that same way and I thought, you know, a scientist sees the world through a certain lens and a mathematician does too. And I thought, well, I don't, I'm not super good at either of them. What am I going to do? But then the older I got, I took an economics course in high school. And it blew my mind how economics just the same. And, you know, law does the same thing, too, is you have a different view of the world. And you understand it from a different perspective. And it just all these different sort of perspectives come together. And that's what sort of lets us work the way we do well together. Because everyone has their sort of their area of expertise. And when we come together with all these different ones, it's nice. But that was just a comment on my part. Um, I'm curious about why you stopped practicing law. You mentioned in class that, you know, it's because lawyers lack a sense of humor, but I'm wondering, is there, is that it? 
Yeah. Are and, you comfortable and, and discussing that's actually that? Not, that's actually not true. Uh, <laughs> I know lots of uh, really funny lawyers and... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I get asked that all the time, mm-hmm. um, because I think, um, um, yeah, people think it's, um, when you make a, a fairly, fairly radical change in your professional and you life. so hard to get there. Um, yeah, I mean, in one ways, uh, it, it doesn't strike me as, as being as a sort of radical shift as I think it might strike other people, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't go to law school thinking I would be a law professor, but I didn't really go to law school thinking I would be a lawyer. I mean, I think which a lot of people do. I think they kind of go. Yeah. And, um, but I I ended up articling at a big firm. I ended up working for the government. Then I ended up going back to a big firm, and I spent the last uh, you know, five years of my practice in a very large um, sort of national law firm. There was lots I really liked about it. I enjoyed my colleagues. I had a good practice. I uh, had generally I had good clients. There were definitely some lifestyle things that were less than ideal, but like, interestingly, could you elaborate on that? Well, uh, um, you in a, you work very hard as a lawyer. I think, and yeah, I mean, different jobs you will have different demands on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, working in a in, in a large firm um, is a quite demanding environment uh, to work in. Okay. Um, there, you know, we generally had billing targets, and we were assessed. Uh, you know, the metric. I was saying this just someone the other day that the metric of working in a law firm compared to the metric of, of doing what I do now, is it was very simple. Um, you know, how much did you bill? How much money did you make for Sounds the firm? Sounds like a sales associate. And so, and you kind of knew where you, you, you knew where you stood, but it's not a particularly satisfying metric. Um, you know, the metrics that I'm assessed by now are, are very unclear because I don't, you know, how happy your students, how, how <laughs> you know, there's uh, how much do I publish, how much uh, do people pay attention, you know, to the stuff I publish, even if I, so the, it, it's a little more uh, diffuse. And so I think there was a number of things. So part of it was lifestyle, but it, but it wasn't so much about how much I worked as it was, because I think I work harder now than I did when I was actually a lawyer, or as hard. Um, but I have a lot more control over okay. my work. And when you work in a client business, you have to respond to your clients. And that means that if you're on holidays, you spend many hours, as I often did, on the phone with clients and senior partners, um, you know, with my family getting increasingly frustrated and uh, upset, I canceled lots of holidays. And so there was always, uh, I think there was always a sense that your time wasn't quite your own because you had to be very responsive to clients. And generally, clients can phone you at Friday at four and say they need something for Monday and they're not particularly interested in, in your weekend plans. And, and that's not a, you know, that's not an everyday occurrence and that's a rarity, but I think sometimes you, um, as you think about how you want to spend your life, yeah. and I, I can remember being in on a Sunday night working and I worked with a very senior partner 
and he was in on a Sunday night as well. And I just asked him. I I said, you know, when when do you stop coming in on a? And he just said, you know, there's uh, um, you don't. This is this is what you signed up for, and 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 that that's fine. I mean, I I actually. I didn't mind it so much as I think, but I, I recognized that it was probably not ideal. I had a, a young family at the time, and, and so that that part of it wasn't ideal, and so I, I thought I would just sort of step away a bit. Uh, I was a little bit frustrated um, at a big firm. My I don't set my rate, my billable hours. So I, I don't set how much I charge per hour. My firm did that. And because I worked in a big corporate firm, I got priced out of a lot of the work that I was interested in doing because um, my you know, my billable rate was was quite high, and yeah. and uh, people couldn't afford me, and mm-hmm. so the only people I could do work for tended to be larger sort of corporate clients. And uh, I think firms are becoming increasingly more sensitive. My firm was my firm was you know was very good at that. If you wanted to work pro bono. Um, they would allow you to do that, um, but at the end of the day, you still had to meet targets and, yeah. and, and, and things like that. And I think, you know, you asked me about misconceptions of, yeah. of, of, of law lawyers, and I think one of the big misconceptions is that, that people think that, that lawyers, particularly big firm lawyers, are are very money-driven, and it's... Um, and, it's um, and, and I, I was amazed and surprised at the number of people working in big firms and, and those kinds of environments who spent a great deal of their time, really in addition to everything else that they did, working on social justice causes. Okay. Uh, and it was, uh, and, and lawyers I think as a profession are really deeply committed uh, much more than many other professions, I think, deeply committed to ideas of social justice and ideas of participating in their communities in, in sort of meaningful ways. And so, um, and, but again, it's, um, um, you can't, you can't do everything. Yeah. So, uh, so I, um, and I guess the, the other thing was, I spent a lot of time as a practicing lawyer coming across issues that I was really interested in, mm-hmm. but I couldn't spend a lot of time thinking about them because you know, I was doing work and for someone else, and you know, I, yeah. I, I, and so, um, and I had done I had done a graduate degree in, in law, um, sort of in the middle of that period, and I really enjoyed it, and so I thought a good way to step away would just be to go back and do a PhD and. I was thinking about sort of reorienting my practice a little bit towards doing more international law, and this seemed like a good way to do it. And then I just got really lucky in that I managed to get an academic position in uh, in the second year of my PhD, and That's so incredible. I um, so I took it. Well, what know, is I, leadership all yeah. about? If that's well, academic leadership is uh, is <laughs> almost an like... oxymoron, right? Because <laughs> you you don't have a lot of you don't have authority the way um, a boss has authority in a in a kind of private organization. I mean, there's mm-hmm. not a there's not really a sense of hierarchy, and so 
Um, I, th I think your job is to um, facilitate other people's success. I mean, that's how I see my job is okay. I have a bunch of I have a bunch of colleagues and students and everyone's trying to achieve things and my job is to try to ensure that the things that are in my control and the conditions that I can impact are arranged in such a way that other people can be successful. And so I think uh, um, you have to use just a lot of persuasion and a <laughs> lot of cajoling people and things like that. Um, but that probably suits my management style. I don't, I'm not a very, I'm not a very hierarchical person. I don't think in my personality, I don't, I, in fact, I, I think I'm a very, um, non-hierarchical person. I have, okay. a, I think, a healthy, um, skepticism about, okay. about hierarchy. Uh, and, uh, so I think that, um, you just, Generally, reasonable people will act reasonably, and you just have to um, point out and <laughs> and create an understanding of what everyone thinks is is reasonable, and just generally treat people with respect. And good things happen. Okay, um, I was going to ask two more questions. One is, what's sort of your go-to way to settle a conflict? Is that too complicated a question for the time we have? Yeah, I'm not sure I have a go-to way. I mean, I think different conflicts lend themselves to different kinds or of resolutions. what's your strategy? What do you like to do? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, <laughs> I assume people will be responsive to reasons. Okay, okay. And I think when... I mean, I think 90% of disputes that I've seen, whether they're disputes between students, mm -hmm. dis you know, disputes between faculty, or, um, um, you know, larger disputes, um, are, are communications problems. Okay. Uh, I mean, I think a lot, of, a lot of bad things happen because people make assumptions about someone's activities or they just don't take the time to find out mm -hmm. um, or people are just communicating badly. And so I think part of it is just to make sure that everyone actually understands what they do and I think to do it in a way that is just respectful of um, that people are acting in good faith and so I think just because someone does something that seems a little boneheaded to you, probably the best approach isn't to rush in and accuse them of being boneheaded and insensitive or whatever the thing is, but to yeah. understand why they did what they did and then try to find a, a pathway forward that um, <laughs> that accommodates whatever yes. they were trying to do and, 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 and hopefully resolves the dispute. And so, again, um, uh, yeah, I'm, so, I'm not in a position to, yeah. to bang heads together or do anything like that. So and, patience and communication. I don't know about patience, but communication. Okay. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm a very patient person, actually. But, well, I mean, um, if you talk about taking the time to figure out why someone's doing what they're doing, then you're obviously not the type of person who, you know, gets really yeah. angry right away. Yeah, I mean, I think I've learned... Is um, that experience? It's a little bit of experience. I mean, I, uh, it's always good to put a 
if I have to draft a strongly worded email or something <laughs> like that, I put it in my inbox overnight or my draft box overnight, and all. And I, I like I've learned that. to I've learned to do that, and almost invariably I change it and soften the tone because um, sometimes. Uh, um, but you know, I I think. You know, people don't have to embrace conflict, but I don't think people have to be afraid of conflict. I don't think there's anything wrong with conflict. I okay. think that lots of things can get resolved, and 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 so avoiding conflict is not necessarily a good strategy. I agree. And um, and I think sticking to your guns, and uh, even if it involves conflict, is is required sometimes. Uh, yeah. And so. <laughs> I, um, yeah, so I guess, um, I, I don't know whether I'm patient. I, I, I honestly think I'm, I'm not a very patient person, but I'm, um, um, and, um, but I guess I try to be reasonably compromising. Okay. Um, better way to put it. So. Okay. And last question, what sure. does success mean to you? Ah, that's the uh, $64,000 question, I guess. Uh, yes. So, yeah, I mean, I knew you were going to ask me this, and I and I was thinking um, how little I actually think about that, um, and which is funny because it seems like something that one ought to think about. The best I could... Uh, <laughs> The best I could come up with, I think, was that I think um, I think I tend to view success in in, in fairly relational terms, and so okay. uh, I think increasingly success for me is about how I manage my relations with the people in my life, and uh, you know whether they're professional relations or personal relations, mm-hmm. um, and you know a lot of good relations are going to do a lot of good for you in your life. And yeah. if you have supportive people around you, if you're supportive of people, then everything else kind of fits together. And, and so I think, um, um, you know, that's probably, uh, if I think about the things that, you know, whether it's make me happy or make me feel, you know, good about my life, they tend to be, yeah. um, you know, that I, you know, that I'm happily married and I've got nice kids and uh, I've got uh, good relationships with my colleagues and I have uh, good relationships with students and things like that. And I think those are the things that, uh, um, you know, keep me getting up in, in, in the morning. And I think having a job that, you know, I I never get up and not want to come to work. So that's success. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty and for all your insights. Um, is there anything you want to add before I... <laughs> There's, there, no, but thank you. I think I've, <laughs> I just had I've, to ask. Okay. No, as in I had to ask if you have anything to add. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay, so then I want to say thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the X-Class's 100 Cups of Coffee series. That was Neil Craig. Um, Join us next week again when we have another guest and another wonderful conversation. Have an awesome week.